Welcome back to the Gene Wolfe Literary Podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm Glenn McDorman. And I'm Brandon Buddha. This is part two of our wrap-up of the complete fifth head of Cerberus. I'm really surprised and excited that we've gotten this far. It's been a really long road. We've spent a lot of time with this with this book, uh, with these three novellas, with this novel as a whole, and we are excited to really dig into themes and motifs of this, the whole thing, Wolf's craft as a writer, and, and some stray observations and bits of fun we had along the way. I'm already starting to miss this book a little bit, even though we're still not done with it, and we're still going to have one more episode to go, but it has been an immense journey. And we do have quite a bit that we want to get through today, but before we get to that, we also want to let you know that we've released another episode that won our Patreon poll that we did when we had hit our our first crowdfunding goal. This was the Star Trek The Next Generation episode, Q Who, which obviously is a Q episode, uh, but is even more important for being the first episode with the Borg. So if you're not already a patron, we'd love if you would check that out. We really love your support and value it. It helps us create more content and do more podcasts. So if you like what we do, if you like what Clay Temple does in general, please consider supporting us at $2 a month or more. It really makes a difference. Well, as I said, we do have a lot that we want to get through tonight. Uh, We're going to start with our section on themes and motifs. The first thing that we want to talk about here, and is really kind of an umbrella category or a big lens through which we can see many of the other themes and motifs, even the puzzles and mysteries of this story, and that is the conflict between nature and nurture, or, or the question of to what extent are our identities, or is who we are, how we behave, determined by something intrinsic in our nature or something about our nurture, something the way that we've been shaped by those around us. This is something that Wolf raises explicitly in the text near the end of the first novella, near the end of the fifth head of Cerberus, when Dr. Marsh, of course, who we now know is VRT, himself says in the basement there of the Maison Duchenne, there are only two forces which act to differentiate between human beings. They are heredity and environment, nature and nurture. We're going to be exploring many of the facets of this, but I just want to start, Brandon, by posing a very broad question to you, which is, do you think is that Wolf is coming down on a particular side of this? Or what is his position about what makes us who we are? I've been thinking about this question a lot since we read Fifth Head, and especially as we've been preparing for these wrap-up episodes, trying to determine whether Wolf is really coming down on a side. And I'm not sure that I at least can say for certain that Wolf is coming down on a side of this debate. I I think it's better maybe to look at these stories as Wolf just examining the question in general and maybe even trying to reframe it, or maybe I've reframed it as a reader. The question that really jumps out to me uh, is, could we be anything other than who we are? In other words, Is it necessary that we become who we have become? Or is our identity based on contingent factors? Are our circumstances contingent, meaning only that they could be otherwise? Or are they necessary, meaning that they could not be otherwise? And what does this question mean when faced with people who do wrong or people who even do evil? This is a a question about is the universe necessary or contingent? Could it be otherwise? 
even this question might be a smokescreen, uh, as Wolf works hard to point out that much of who we are or who these characters are is formed by circumstances that are far beyond their control, both in terms of nature and nurture. We see in the story Fifth Head, number five, hoping that he could turn out other than he has, but he, he's writing his own history in order to defend his repetition of his family's work, his own taking ownership of that role of the Maitre. It's almost as though he's telling us that it's inevitable that things turn out the way that they have, and that his father has done the exact same thing that he has done. And so maybe the answer for number five is that his identity is necessary. Uh, There's that line early on in Fifth Head, where number five points out that his father was the most permanent feature of Port Mimizan. And by number five taking on his father's role, he becomes another form of this permanence that is important in the functioning of Port Mimizan, as we see in VRT. In a story by John V. Marsh, we see Sandwalker faced with the choice of rescuing his family or starting a new one. And this ability to start a new family, the stepping out of his role in his own family to start something new would potentially end the cycle of violence. That's all he knows. But now he has to continue this violence in order to be free and free his family. We see in a story that the only possibility for ending this cycle of choices that keep the Abo stuck in a violent status quo in a war is really the invasion or presence of an outside force that is wholly unknown to them up until that point. And in VRT, I think we see the clearest picture of what's happening with this question of nature or nurture. We see that both nature and nurture have conspired to turn VRT into what he is. He has inherited some issue with his hands from his father, and he's been conditioned to be a fraud also by his father. And he tries to make the best of his life, and he leaves the first chance he gets when someone from the outside, again, provides him with the opportunity to change the status quo, but it all goes terribly awry. It's as if that conditioning and that inheritance both keep VRT from being anything other than who he is, that it's necessary that he becomes who he is. VRT is forced, as a result, to confront his constructed reality and it causes a total breakdown. He returns to his old ways in a new place in Port Mimizan, masquerading as uh, an anthropologist, thinking it will be different. But he actually just descends into hell and gets trapped there. In a way, I think Wolf is pointing to the extreme complexity of the world in which we live, in which even when we take responsibility for ourselves and our own actions, it is not nearly enough to escape the pull of our early nurturing and social conditioning. And it's possible that Wolf is making a radical case for a fully necessary universe. All that happens is out of necessity. And the only way to end the cycle that we are in is for an outsider to force us to reckon with something much larger than our own conditioning and environment. And whether this is an intentional kind of import of the, the the Christian story, the Catholic ideas about the universe, or it's unintentional. I think that that is where Wolf ends up here in this trilogy of novellas. We can't dig 
the way out of ourselves. And we need somebody from outside us to pull us free. And I think that's what we're seeing in these stories. People who are necessarily the way they are. It literally could not be otherwise for these people. I think that really raises some big questions about the nature of evil or the necessity of evil in the world. But that is too big of a topic, I think, for us to to jump into on this. I don't know, Glenn, what do you what do you think about werewolf is with this question? I was thinking about this question in terms of how much agency do we have in determining who we are? Uh, really, maybe even sidestepping, as I think you did a little bit too, the question of are we determined by our nature or our nurture? And, and turning that into a question of can we overcome both of those forces in whatever proportion it is that they're they're working on us and lay claim or shape our own identities. This is something that is also a, a motif that we see in the story. This is what being a shape-shifting abo is all about, is this ability to change what you are based on your environment or based on the circumstances in which you find yourself or simply because you want to, perhaps. And we see this as well with VRT, right? And, and, and something that I was thinking about here along these lines is, can VRT be an alien? Can he be an abo? Uh, or can he be an animal just because he is thinking that he is? Uh, can we alter our identities simply through a, a force of will or uh, active agency or active change? And I think you've just suggested that it requires an external force, but uh, I, I might have a more optimistic reading of the the text than that. Again, we're stuck in Wolf's puzzle room of subjectivity <laughs> versus objectivity here, where the tools that allow VRT to believe the things he believes are really the absence of a society, of social conditioning, of other people forcing him to reckon with an objective reality. He's isolated for the majority of his late adolescence, and he's obsessed with this idea that his mother is really this special woman who has gifted him with a, a, a special dispensation, a special ability to shift his looks. So I think VRT is kind of playing that double game where, yes, VRT is able to imagine these realities for himself, but it's only under the condition that he's not being forced into a community that reinforces objective or at least intersubjective standards of reality. The question I think that you're also talking about here is a question of, I think you said determinism. Is it the case that any of us are free? So there's one question under which our natures are predetermined and we cannot ever be anything other than who we are. But then there's the larger question of does the course of history follow the same path? Could it be otherwise? That is a, that is a question that is a little bit more thorny, I think, than the, the question of whether or not our identities could be otherwise. And by the time you get to an age where you can really reflect on this, maybe you can see choices where things could have gone a different way and you could have been different, perhaps. But I think that that is giving too much power to the nurture side to so the society to say like if i had done this x y or z would not have happened 
and it I would not be the way I am. But that's all to say that you haven't taken responsibility to make choices in the future. You're still moored in the past. And I think we see that kind of mooring both in num- number five's memoir, in A Stories uh, and VRT's imagination about the past being the vast place where all all things are uh, and the future not really being important. And then in VRT's own prison diary and his reflections and his ability to only imitate who John Marsh was, but he can't figure out who John Marsh is or will be because John Marsh is dead. There's one more thing that I want to say on this broad topic of nature versus nurture before we start getting into some of the the components of it, uh, which is I want to revisit this scene in the first novella when number five uh, sees a clone, uh, one of the clones in the slave market. And he writes that I spoke to him and would have bought and freed him, but he answered me in the servile way of slaves, and I turned away in disgust and went home. This is number five, realizing that the only thing that distinguishes him from this slave is their nurture, because they share a nature. And so it is the circumstances of their upbringing that have uh, determined uh, who they are, uh, what their behaviors are, not even just their station in life, but what their behaviors are. And the servile manner that the slave has is a result of that type of conditioning. This is also a refutation of the natural slave theory of Aristotle, which we spent a lot of time on recently, uh, saying that there is nothing inherent in them that makes him them slaves, that it is about the, the conditioning of the environment, that it is about nurture. And for me, I think that this line and, and many others suggest that one of the things that Wolf is doing here with this clash of nature and nurture is to be thinking about the responsibility of parenting, the responsibility that parents have in not just making sure that their kids are fed and sheltered, but that they grow up in an environment that nurtures them to be the best type of person they can, uh, to be a good person, we might say. Uh, And with that in mind, I want to transition us into talking more specifically about family as a theme that we have or as a motif that we have in this story, kind of a deeper dive into the nurture part of this nature versus nurture discussion. And I think that it is fair to say that one of the central things that this book is about is abusive fathers and absent mothers. Uh, It is a recurring motif in this story. But we also have something that repeats here, uh, wildly different siblings. Uh, There are twins everywhere in this story, including the very planets themselves. So uh, this is clearly a motif that Wolf is playing with. question that I have for you about this, Brandon, is are all of the families that we encounter in this story dysfunctional? And if, if that is true, why are they dysfunctional? What is Wolf doing with that? Why is he telling us a, this story of several dysfunctional families? <laughs> well, I think every single family we meet in this novel is dysfunctional in some way. Uh, the family who resides at the Maison du Chien experiments on one another and the outcomes of their activities and interactions with one another result in murder, mayhem, and theft. Uh, Fidria, of course, her family is an absolute disaster and the society rewards the type of behavior that her father is involved with, either having a daughter that can be married to a wealthy family or sold into slavery. The society is broken and it 
really starts at this family unit level. The family in A Story by John V. Marsh is very broken, both literally and figuratively, of course. The one son, Eastwind, he doesn't know his own mother, and he treats his original unit, the, the his original family unit, uh, including old Bloody Finger and Sweet Mouth and Leaves You Can Eat and Cedar Branches Waving, uh, as uh, totally as a means to an end. And his own brother is is used as a tool for a religious ritual. VRT's family is obviously a wreck. His father pimped out his mother, and VRT's mother left when he was just a boy. And then VRT was left alone in the wilderness because he couldn't return home after his mentor dies due to his own hatred of his father. And like every question that's asked of me in this podcast, I really don't have a definite answer for a reason why. <laughs> so we're just going to noodle around with, with a few thoughts I have surrounding the questions. I, I don't know why all these families are so broken, but something occurred to me. One trope that Wolf might be playing with is the trope of the orphan uh, hero, typically found in you know hero stories and fairy tales. And it's important to know that these novellas were written before Star Wars and the explosion of epic fantasy genre in the in the publishing scene. Um, but these ideas are not new ideas. Wolf might be asking the question in these stories uh, of what happens to the protagonist or hero, potential hero, when he is held back from being heroic by his family. In other words, Maybe the idea is something like heroism is innate to all of us, and we are only able to rise above it when we are in the circumstances that allow us to act as if we have no background or no family, etc. Though they may be motivators, as they are for Sandwalker, he acts alone. He acts without their support or criticism or uh, anything. He finds his own heroic nature. And then, so this really raises the question, and it goes back to the question of nature versus nurture. You know, do any of these characters really have the ability to overcome their odds? What happens if a hero is crippled, either through nurture or through their nature, as VRT is in both cases, and, and cannot overcome the odds they need to in order to raise themselves up to the next level? You know, number five cannot leave the Maison du Chien and live the life he chooses. VRT cannot escape isolation at the end of the day. He has too much derision for humanity and his beliefs make him an outsider. You know, even if VRT reconciles with himself, what are the chances that he'll be able to get out of prison unless he gets dug out by some kindly priest who will give him a map to a hidden treasure uh, on, the, on, the sh- <laughs> on, the, on the island of Monte Cristo or something along those lines? And some of this ties into the question of religion when we get there. So I'm going to hold off a little bit. But I do want to tease the fact that I do want to talk about what the role of the church is in a society. And what does it mean when we have a church that's not doing what it's supposed to be doing and the kinds of rules it's supposed to be reinforcing or the kind of sweeping up it is supposed to do in uh, society um, for these types of broken people. So I really think that that Wolf is examining and reversing the hero story in some way. And the only heroes that really exist in this trilogy of novellas are in the mind of VRT. 
Well, you make a great observation when you point out that heroes are traditionally orphans in some way. Of course, you brought up Star Wars, right? Luke Skywalker is an orphan already when we meet him in that story and then just even to double down to make sure he really can go on the hero's journey they even kill his foster family his aunt and uncle who have been raising him you know think about harry potter as well uh, and and you know hundreds of other heroes who will fit that mold but something that occurred to me while you were talking about this is that one of the differences between number 5 and his brother david is that david escapes the 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 family and in some ways, he's he's freed by the the murder of Major by Number Five, but more specifically, he's actually freed by the fact that he can't prove that he's a part of the family. Otherwise, he would have inherited the wealth and the family business. He himself then might have turned into the the brothel keeper, uh, something very similar, someone very similar to to Maitre, which we know, of course, is the fate of Number Five, uh, the fate that he's even embracing at the end of the Fifth Head of Cerberus. But that that removal from the family forced removal from the family really is the thing that permits him to escape and as we talked about months and months ago now uh, possibly to go and have his own hero's journey out in this society one more thing i wanted to say about families is something that occurred to me while you were talking when you, you mentioned phedria you know, i don't think something that really quite occurred to me until this moment or something that we talked about yet is is the extent to which Phaedria's bad behavior, her her persona as the femme fatale in that first novella, uh, has to be wrapped up in the fact that she knows that there is a non-zero chance that she's going to be sold into sex slavery by her parents, who have not hidden this from her. They have told her this from as long as she can remember. She has grown up knowing that if she can't find a wealthy husband, if she can't insinuate herself into some other type of dependency on a wealthy male, then she will be sold into sex slavery, which would be even worse. There may actually be a third option, which is for her to develop her own wealth somehow. And that might be a big part of what is motivating her thievery, right? Her lust to to get money, which I think we really saw as being part of this femme fatale and part of her villainy, but really might be also wrapped up in this panic that she has about not being able to exercise any agency in who she is whether she becomes the the wife of a wealthy person or whether she becomes the actual legal property and a sex slave of a wealthy person, that maybe she's looking for a third way there to escape the, the tangled web that her, her family, that her father is spinning for her. And I, I don't want to excuse her. I don't want to excuse her villainy, but I think that this is, again, an instance where Wolf has really shrewdly thought through what motivates a person and, and of course, you know, what makes for a rich character. I think when we get to our discussion on religion, I'm going to try to put a finer point on some of these things that we're saying on how a society functions in terms of the way people treat one another and view one another. I think it's an excellent point about uh, Phaedria. I mean, she could also escape and run away and live in the mountains, um, but she's also grown up in a certain mode of being and comfort. Yeah, I can't imagine it's ever occurred to her that she could just go live out in the wilderness and make traps and eat squirrels and live that way. I, I, I do not think that that is something that will have occurred to her at all. But you, you raise a, a great point here, which is that in Fifth Head of Cerberus, all of the, the drama that we're getting is at the uh, upper echelon of the socioeconomic ladder. 
in VRT, it's the opposite, that, that VRT's family is at the, the bottom, that they are not living in this uh, this beautiful mansion, in this uh, trading town, that they are living in a backwater failure of a community, and that they are living under an old boat in that backwater failure of a community. Is Wolf doing something here by giving us these two families at really complete opposite poles of the socioeconomic spectrum? Is there something he wants us to be thinking about there in that with that juxtaposition? That really is a fantastic question. I think it's easier maybe to imagine just leaving it all behind when you're already living just above a subsistence level than when you are used to three meals a day, servants, maids. And there's a lot more to lose that maybe you take for granted at the higher ends of the socioeconomic status. And so it is easier for VRT to imagine just escaping and living in the wilderness because it's probably a better life than what he has now. Nature provides everything for him without really any red tape. Whereas in the community he's in, he's treated as retarded. He's not allowed to go to school. Everything is being withheld from him by people for no reason that makes any sense to him, at least. Number five is one of the people who can withhold from others. He has the power to free a slave just on a walk in the neighborhood. He can make that choice. He has that kind of buying power and he chooses not to. So maybe there's a lot more to be done with this question, but it just it hadn't occurred to me until you asked it, but it's definitely something worth looking at on a on a second, third, fourth, fifth, or sixth reread of this series of novellas. <laughs> well, even just as you were talking, you know, this question has kind of come up organically here. But even while you were giving your your answer to it, you know, I was just reminded of the the really significant statement that Constant makes that we've already talked quite a bit about that when he insists to VRT that a person can only be free when that person is an owner of slaves. But you've you've just given a definition of freedom that's the complete opposite of that. That in fact, having property, having wealth, uh, having a station, having things that you are afraid of losing is a type of servitude to those possessions to that materiality. And then it is VRT, this poor beggar of a, of a kid who actually has more freedom than either number five or David have, because he can walk away from all of that and not actually lose anything. Uh, I, I'm coming dangerously close here to quoting Janice Joplin. So I think before, before that happens, maybe we should move into the, the next topic that we, we want to discuss. So now that we have talked a little bit about the, about family, uh, looking at the nurture side of the nature versus nurture argument. And there's still much more that could have been said about that. But we're going to go look at the actual nature side a little bit here and focus on another theme, another motif that Wolf uses in this novel, which is evolution. Uh, we're going to point out a few places where Wolf discusses variant models of evolution, but we're also going to talk about how his use of evolution you know, is wrapped up in this question of nature versus nurture, how he uses that to address this question. Yeah, this is a topic, Len, I think you've done you've done a lot more work on than I have. So I'm excited to, to hear from you on, on some of the conclusions you've drawn. But particularly, I know uh, not long ago, you picked up a book uh, of essays uh, about scientists kind of revisiting Lamarckism. And that has helped form some of your understanding of Wolf's use of ideas within evolution. Where do you see that Lamarckism or 
Lamarckian evolution come into play in Fifth Head or this whole series of novellas? This is something that I am really excited about. Uh, this is something that going into this project, the whole project of the Gene Wolfe Literary Podcast, uh, that I didn't really know a lot about and wasn't really prepared for, but have now found to be really interesting and really exciting. And even reading through The Fifth Head of Cerberus this time, uh, I've realized that Wolf is staking out a position on the mechanisms of evolution and is really even... Uh, challenging the consensus view here in this book. Uh, I'm going to, before I get to that, I'm going to start really as back as broadly as we can, just with some definitions uh, and and set up some context. So, so to start, just Lamarckism uh, is named after uh, Jean-Baptiste Lamarck, who worked in the late 18th century. And Lamarck developed a theory of evolution uh, prior to, to Darwin, about uh, two generations prior to Darwin. And uh, much of late 19th century, and especially early 20th century, evolutionary biology is concerned with whether Darwin's model or Lamarck's model of evolution was more correct. Now, of course, I think everyone who's you know, gone to high school uh, has learned that Darwin favored the mechanism of natural selection. And natural selection, we might really even call accidental selection. Uh, as environments change in a, a variety of ways, be, you know, uh, changes in climate, but also changes in availability of food, or the, the prevalence of predators, or, or just even competitors for resources, uh, the members of a species with traits that permit survival in whatever these new conditions are, are the ones who will pass on those traits and other traits that they possess, while other members of the species will die off. And that is how a species changes slowly over time uh, and becomes different than it was 10 million years previously. Everyone probably is familiar with the, the pictures of the moths during the Industrial Revolution when soot made uh, the cityscapes and even uh, forests, uh, wildernesses blacker or darker than they used to be. And so moths that had darker coloring were more likely to survive than white colored moths. And that was a uh, dramatic and, and rather rapid evolutionary change uh, that we've all seen in those high school textbooks. But Lamarck's model is about adaptation to environmental changes rather than merely the accidental survival of them. Uh, for Lamarck, uh, as environments change, life forms, uh, organisms will actually adapt to them, that they will develop new physical traits, uh, new physical characteristics to cope with these changes, and they will pass those traits and characteristics onto their offspring. Uh, and we shouldn't imagine this in extreme or immediate terms. It is still a gradual process, though in Lamarck's view, in Lamarck's mechanism, this is something that can happen much more quickly than in, in Darwin's. Uh, but nonetheless, animals do not you know, spontaneously grow extra limbs in response to environmental changes, uh, but they may adapt to a slight change in air chemistry or the nutrients that are available in their food and pass those adaptations on to their children. Now, we should be clear about a few things right at the start of this conversation uh, about the debate between Lamarckism and, and Darwinism. And the first is simply that Lamarck lost this debate, right? And we'll, we'll talk about why that was in a little bit. But the second thing that we should say is that despite the fact that Lamarckism was discredited, Wolf himself is a self-proclaimed Lamarckian, sort of. Uh, 
Uh, Wolf has said that Lamarck's model of the mechanism of evolution is correct, but he has also said that it is compatible with Darwin's, that they can both be correct, that it doesn't have to be a zero-sum game or an either-or scenario. And this is important because, as I've said, much of this novel is actually taken up with Wolf's views on this. And I will get around to pointing out where those places are in a little bit, but but we can say right now that we've even encountered this before in just the very second story that we ever covered on the show, uh, which was House of Ancestors, in which we met a robot Lamarck and probably should have done a lot of this work back in that episode. But hey, we're getting to it now. It's only, you know, been a year. Right. It took us a little while to figure out that Wolf was uh, not just putting this guy in a second story, but that this is a major figure in Wolf's kind of intellectual life. So... Here we are. Right. And we should say thank you to many forum members and uh, also especially Mark Aramini, who pointed this out to us. Uh, you know, we took some flack for our coverage of House of Ancestors because it wasn't a story that we liked very much either. Uh, but now we are prepped to talk about this here. And and so another thing that I want to say about this debate between Lamarckism and Darwinism is that it was really carried out by neo-Darwinists and neo-Lamarckians, uh, not by Darwin and Lamarck themselves. And additionally, neither Darwin nor Lamarck were aware of the experiments of Gregor Mendel that provided a model for our current understanding of genetics. Uh, And in fact, Lamarck, of course, was unaware of this because he was dead by then. So, you know, he's off the hook for that. Uh, But Mendel and Darwin were contemporaries. It's just that Darwin never read Mendel's work on how he made pea hybrids. And so he didn't know about it. Uh, and of course, we should say as well that all of this is predating the discovery of DNA, which didn't happen until the 1950s. And so this was really even a brand new idea when Wolf was writing The Fifth Head of Cerberus. And we did talk about that back in House of Ancestors as well. Uh, but later biologists saw that Mendel's genetics or his experiments with genetics were uh, a, the perfect mechanism for how natural selection could work by passing on really a, a set of particles to an organism's offspring. Now, neo-Lamarckians disagreed with the notion that genes, or after 1953, DNA, was the only mechanism of heredity. They don't deny that it is a mechanism of heredity, but they do disagree that it is the only. And this is where we start to see this in Fifth Head of Cerberus. Wolf makes this very claim in the first novella when he has Maitre discuss the difficulty of cloning. Maitre says, "'You people who have never tried it think the technique is simple because you've heard it can be done.' But you don't know how difficult it is to prevent spontaneous differences. Every gene dominant in myself had to remain dominant. And people are not garden peas. Few things are governed by simple Mendelian pairs. This is an easily overlooked statement here in what is a pretty tense conversation that all that, that culminates with Maitre's murder. But this is Gene Wolfe throwing down a pretty serious neo-Lamarckian gauntlet by saying that physiological elements outside of the DNA or even outside of the gene in an organism can influence gene expression, which then goes on to influence a, an organism's phenotype as well as its genotype. Now, neither of us are biologists, but I can imagine here an evolutionary biologist reading this in 1972 and and really feeling like Wolf has just challenged him to a duel, right? These are fighting words that Wolf is using here. Easily missed, but there's a lot packed into it. Uh, There's another place where we see Wolf making some Lamarckian claims in this book, too. Uh, Abophysiology, as the old wise one describes it in a story, is about 
Lamarckian adaptability, this this abo ability to take on the properties of a cloud or a lava flow in response to a new environment is a kind of hyper Lamarckian evolution that is all about adaptation rather than about natural selection. A creature like these abos is wholly impossible in a Darwinian model because it would require there to have already been cloud animals or lava animals before the environment changed. But Wolf clearly has in mind that, that these are all adaptations, that they are phenotype expressions by members of the same species. So again, this is drawn pistols at dawn here, if you were an evolutionary biologist reading this in 1972. And all that, I think, goes right in line with uh, Antonine's uh, own critique of Dr. Vale's herself theory about the abos when she is correcting number five for his misuse of the word perfectly. She says, number five, you're too young for semantics, and I'm afraid you've been led astray by that word perfectly. Dr. Vale, I'm certain, meant to use it loosely rather than as precisely as you seem to think. The imitation could hardly have been exact, the imitation of the abos to humans, since human beings don't possess that talent. And to imitate them perfectly, the abos would have to lose it. And she goes on to say, my dear child, abilities of every sort must evolve. And when they do, they must be utilized or they atrophy. If the abos had been able to mimic so well as to lose their power to do so, that would have been the end of them. And no doubt it would have come long before the first ships reached them. And so this is saying that they would have changed their species. They would no longer have been abos if they were to adapt to an environment that caused them to lose their adaptability. That would have been the end of the species because it would have been a new species instead of the original one. And adaptation is the the key word in that, right? That that is that even her understanding of how this process would work is about this uh, semi-conscious, almost willful adaptation to environmental change rather than the accident of natural selection or the accidental survival of whoever happens to be the fittest in one circumstance, from one circumstance to another. As you said, Brandon, I did get really interested in this. And so I have, in fact, uh, done some reading on it. And it's only been since the the 1990s, so really well after Wolf wrote this book, that uh, evolutionary biologists began to reassess, to, to question the dominance of the Darwinian model. And so there is actually now a great deal of, of current, of contemporary literature on this subject. Uh, and the book that I picked up is called Transformations of Lamarckism. It's edited by scientists uh, Gysis and Jablonka. Uh, it's a collection of papers that were given at a conference uh, held in Israel in 2009. And there are some really fascinating articles in this book. And uh, even with the very high price tag of an academic publication, I do recommend it to anyone who's interested in all of this. Uh, But I'll just summarize the main gist of the the proceedings. Uh, First is that all sorts of scientists have been reassessing the role of natural selection in evolution and the role of DNA in heredity. Basically, scientists have identified a number of epigenetic phenomena, uh, heredity that takes place outside of the gene and that supports the neo-Lamarckian idea that hereditary adaptation is an important mechanism in a species evolution. 
What I found most fascinating in this book were the explanations for why neo-Darwinism had essentially shut down any other type of inquiry for three generations. Uh, And I won't go into all of them, but one of them is simply that animals seem to conform the most to neo-Darwinian ideas, uh, and people were mostly studying animals because we are animals and are therefore interested in them uh, kind of implicitly. Uh, But as soon as you really investigate single-cell organisms, fungi, and, and even just houseplants like we have here in the studio, it becomes clear that a lot of heredity takes place outside of genes, and it is in response to the adaptations of an organism's uh, parent or parents. Although that really fascinating. Uh, I will say there's also a really great article in here that's about how the the Cold War uh, really shut down investigations into non-Darwinian mechanisms of evolution. And of course, we've seen already how much this book and so many other works of Wolf were shaped by the fact that they were being written in the Cold War. So lots of parallels there. But I just want to close out my discussion here of Lamarckism by saying that even though a story by John V. Marsh very much feels like a fantasy story, a story about a pre-modern people that is focused around a hero's journey. Wolf uses this to lay out his minority opinion on evolution, as well as on cosmology, which we talked about when we were covering that novella. And I think that that's really interesting, really fascinating, that he is taking this genre of uh, epic fantasy or heroic fantasy and using it to comment on contentious issues in contemporary science. Uh, even at this point, even when he is writing fantasy, he is still being Gene Wolfe, the mechanical engineer who is interested in these scientific topics. And that in many ways, this is this is a foray into science fantasy, uh, for which, of course, he becomes famous later. I think what we've discovered here as we're wrapping up our coverage and and looking at these different themes that come up one by one and particularly with evolution uh, and Wolf's claims or Wolf's flirting with Lamarckism is that we're really finding out once again how much Wolf puts into each of these books, how rewarding uh, a reread is when you pull on one of these strands and see it go all the way through the three books. It's absolutely remarkable what Wolf is able to do. And to take a kind of a, a fantasy story and turn it into a, a treatise on why Lamarck might be right. I don't know. That's what we all come to Wolf for, I think, at the end of the day. Right. I didn't go into reading this book thinking that I was going to have my own views about the the nature of the cosmos challenged and, in fact, changed through the act of reading this book. Uh, presumably, that was something Wolf had as an objective when he was doing this. And so uh, it has worked on at least one person 50 years later. Well, as fun as the Lamarckism stuff was for me, and hopefully for you as well, I want to bring us back to looking at evolution as a part of this discourse on nature versus nurture. And I want to do that by highlighting where Wolf is dealing with the concept of biological determinism, this idea that we as people are determined by our biology above all else. Uh, this is an idea that frequently is in fashion. Maybe it's always in fashion with some people. Uh, I know for me personally, this was a big part of the discourse about rape culture and about infidelity when I was in high school back in the 90s, and that this was really one of the ways of justifying the expression, boys will be boys. Uh, And this is part of why I really actually related to to VRT, uh, because some of the things that he was thinking there in his theory about sexual attraction, which are all about 
biological determinism were things that I was hearing my friends say, were things, were ideas that I was taking seriously. This was a part of our discourse in at least this one high school in the Chicago suburbs in the 1990s. Now, before we get into it, let me just restate what VRT's theory was, which was simply that the things that people are attracted to in potential mates, and in this case specifically, that men are attracted to in women, are physical characteristics that increase the odds of the survivability of them as a mated pair, and especially of the survival of their offspring. Now, as we've already discussed, Wolf does not buy into the idea that nature is at least on its own, makes us what we are. And I also think it's really important that he has VRT mention Darwin in the passage uh, in which he is stating this theory about the biologically determined sexual attraction, and that the emphasis is all on that Darwinian mechanism of evolution, which, as we've just discussed, Wolf doesn't think is the complete story. So I I think that VRT's theory here is meant to come off as completely ridiculous. And we were dismissive of it, and we talked about how it it develops really organically out of VRT's character. But I do want to emphasize that I think that Wolf wants us to not take this as a serious idea or an idea worth uh, that, that has credibility, right? It's not something that Wolf himself is advocating. And, and ultimately, to me at least, Wolf seems to be using this discussion here in VRT of biological determinism as a way to underscore his belief that we are more than just our biological heritage, that we are more than what our DNA says we are, that our behavior and our choices are not determined by that. That's not who we are. Right. I think we talked about this a little bit in the episode as well, that such a view discounts so much of what makes our life valuable. It discounts things like beauty or love. Uh, love you know, can be explained away by scientists Beauty is uh, a, a problem uh, that I think philosophers and, and scientists still grapple with. We have a real crisis of beauty in our culture right now where beauty is no longer a value. But if you go back to the kind of late modern philosophers, they're very concerned about things like ornamentation, accessories, the way we dress, the way we interact, fashions, fads, novelty. Edmund Burke opens up one of his famous works, uh, it might be on the sublime or on beauty or something like that, with an exploration into uh, the human love of curiosity and novelty. And so much of what makes us us in terms of identity, whether it is a cipher or whether it's real, is real because we experience it. And I think Wolf is always in that subjective space of the character and really rejects the types of arguments that would force us to lose our subjectivity and treat ourselves purely objectively. Because so much of what we are is our raw experience of the world. And, you know, that I think when you're 15 or 16, I think you don't have any ideas about the complexity and wonder and beauty of how people interact, of human existence, of the types of games people actually play to mate and the type of concerns and anxieties and desires people have that only 
seem to compound as you get older. And of course, all the all of the protagonists in these novellas are adolescent boys. And that is something that we're going to come back to when we get into our, our craft section. I think now that we've we've talked about uh, evolution and talked about the, the nature side of nature versus nurture, and we've talked about family, the nurture side of this, uh, that we can bring this to a, a conclusion by talking again uh, about personhood. Uh, as we've already been talking about, as we have gone through this nature versus nurture argument and look, looked at family, looked at evolution through that lens, uh, it's pretty clear that this book is very much about who we are and why or even how we are who we are. Uh, but it is also very much concerned with what makes someone a person, this question of personhood that we've seen in many places in this novel. And I just want to go through, make a little catalog, a little list of the discussions that we've already had, right? The, the places where we've already seen this. We've seen this come up as the dichotomy of body versus soul or body versus mind. We've seen this come up in the dichotomy of human and robot. Is Mr. Million a human or is he a robot? Or maybe we should say really human and machine there. Uh, in VRT, uh, really even in a story, we have human versus animal, right? What is the difference between a human and an animal? Where does that distinction lie? How permeable is it? And of course, from the start, in the fifth head of Cerberus, with the question raised by Vale's hypothesis, is this dichotomy of human versus alien? What is the difference and how could you tell? Uh, we have Mr. Million asking the question explicitly, are the aboriginal inhabitants of St. Anne people or are they not? And we get great arguments for and against in that scene. So these are all things that we have talked about before, but Brandon, I just wanted to give you the opportunity, if you want it, uh, to give us any final thoughts you have about what ultimately it is that Wolf is getting at here. Without going too deep into philosophy of mind uh, here, I think Wolf's ultimate idea of personhood, of what makes a person a person, of what separates us from animals, is the ability to communicate our subjectivity to another member of our species. Uh, we see him reject the arguments for rationality and sanity. Uh, we see him struggle with concepts of artificial intelligence. And we see his artificial intelligences, his robots, take on personhood explicitly through the way they're able to really tell it's tell stories right that it, telling a story is communicating your subjective experience to somebody else and and, and making it a, a part of the world in some way while it could be the case that animals may have subjective experiences their ability to communicate that to us or to be understood uh, though maybe we're getting close with dolphins i don't know and we'll have a <laughs> sequest uh, dsv type of situation here in the, in the near future but i think that it is this ability to to communicate your own circumstances. And we think about this when we talk about empathy. One of the reasons why we think torture is so horrible is the not just the effect it has on the person being tortured, but the experience of having to shut down all of your natural empathetic responses to causing harm to another person is, is damaging to the person employed in doing that work as well. You know, Slavoj Žižek talks about 
the horror of the suggestions of making torture an experience that can no longer be subjectively communicated to the torturer. Uh, that that's that's another big topic, and that's that's what made me think of this in terms of the subjective communication. We know we do this with animals too. If we harm an animal, its experience there, its recognition of harm or fear, our ability to recognize that causes us to stop, and it's almost as though we are projecting personhood at that moment onto the animal. So I really think at the end of the day, through these stories, what Wolf is saying is that the ability to communicate our own subjectivity to others is what gives us personhood. And this is all over a story by John V. Marsh. If we take it for granted that VRT is somehow the chief shadow child in in some way that in his mind, he is the human among the animals in the back of beyond and that he is anthropomorphizing the animals and giving them a voice that can speak to him. And so they are like people there as people. And when he is struggling with his sanity and says he can no longer speak, he's only imitating the sounds of humans. He is lost his ability to communicate his subjective experiences to others. So maybe that's my new theory on on uh, what Wolf believes personhood is. This is ever evolving as we encounter more and more robots and split identities and even torturers, uh, dare I say, in the future. Yeah, 30 years from now, we're going to actually have to write a book about exactly that topic once we've, we've caught up with, uh, with the, all, the whole body of Wolf's work. So, Randy, you just said something that I thought was, was really, uh, really excellent, really fantastic observation. You really highlighted the extent to which, I guess, empathy... Uh, is is a, a trait of being a person, this ability to understand, to recognize when we're doing harm to others. Uh, but that also when we do that, when we are when we harm an animal, uh, you know, accidentally perhaps, and recognize that we've hurt it and we stop, that this idea that because in some way we are recognizing them as people in that moment. Uh, this is what Vale's hypothesis is all about, right? Ultimately, uh, Vale's hypothesis is an explanation for the cruelty of San Qua, right? And Janine believes that humans would never treat other humans this way. They would never uh, abuse. They would never enslave. They would never create these uh, military tyrannies, but that is the society on St. Croix and St. Anne. And because humans wouldn't ever do those things, we must all secretly be aliens. And and this is a question of who we are and why we are who we are. Uh, but for me, this, this focus of Vale's hypothesis on being a solution to the behavior of the people that Aunt Janine sees is the real nail in the coffin for any reading that depends on there being aliens in this story. Because at the end of the day, this is a story about abuse. The Fifth Head of Cerberus is a story about fathers abusing their children. It is about people enslaving their neighbors. And it is a story about totalitarian governments who rule by fear. Aunt Janine recognizes all of this for what it is, but she also recognizes herself as a part of this abuse as the manager of sex slaves. And she wants to know why her society is the way it is and why she is the way she is, just like her brother does. And I think that Vale's hypothesis is really her version of the human experiments that Maitre is up to, right? She wants to know if the reason that she and everyone around her are vile 
is that they aren't really people to begin with, uh, that they're just aliens, that they're, they're aliens who are just mimicking the behavior of humans without uh, a, a soul or some kind of divine spark that makes humans moral agents. Uh, and so f- for me, if that is true, if Vale's hypothesis is true, if she and everyone else are just shape-shifting aliens who don't know it, then it really takes the teeth out of Wolf's stories of abuse in this novel, right? It would let us off the hook for our own behaviors. But I think that these are behaviors that Wolf is asking us to examine. That's, that's why he's writing a book about it, that these are behaviors that each of us is capable of. And what he wants is for us to think about why. We are capable of it. Why are real, non-speculative societies that we live in today, why they are unjust, why we as real people are sometimes cruel, and what we can do about it. And, and I don't think that Wolf wants us to be let off the hook because we're secretly just aliens. So that's where I really see all of this, these themes of personhood getting sewn up together here in addressing this issue of nature versus nurture. That's an excellent point. I really like the way you brought Vale's hypothesis back into this because this is explicit in the text. Antonine herself says, Vale wants a dramatic explanation for the cruelty and irrationality he sees around him and has hung 50 pounds of theory on nothing. And number five's explanation for Vale's hypothesis is to say, the summary of Vale's hypothesis is this, they're not dead, we are which is kind of a mind-bending statement. But that kind of chilling, we are dead, is also an explanation for the cruelty and irrationality that plagues the society. It's what I was talking about with shutting down empathy in order to achieve your own ends at the cost of other people. That is the death of humanity. That That is rejecting your own personhood, your own desire to participate in a community because you're saying your own, at all costs, you should get what you want and other people then no longer exist. They are all dead and you are dead yourself. And this is the hell that Wolf has created for us. And that's absolutely the perfect transition into the last theme and motif that we want to talk about, which is religion. And we've put this here at the end because it seems to be something that is almost missing from the story and that that might not be coincidental in a story that is really taking place in this hellscape in which people are being cruel to each other. All this this unjustness that uh, Aunt Janine points out in the formulation of Vale's hypothesis to begin with. We have a couple of specific questions that we want to get to and we'll just see where these lead us. The first question is one that we have asked uh, throughout this podcast and even in this particular episode has already come up. We know that San Qua and St. Anne are societies of uh, Christians, societies of adherence to Catholic Christianity. That there are, there's a cathedral in Port Mimizan that it rings out bells uh, uh, to, uh, to mark the time of day. But where are the priests in this story is a question we have asked time and again. Brandon, do you have any final thoughts on this? This question has really troubled me for a little while. Glenn, you pointed out that we see the Catholic culture with churches and bells and well all the bells and whistles i suppose you could say <laughs> but but there are no priests acting in society there's nobody who is standing up on behalf of the orphans and widows you know i, th- I you know for, first of all this is further proof that this planetary system is a kind of hell 
the charge of a, of a priest or of a, any type of Christian really is to really look after those in society who who society as a whole has forgotten, who has fallen through the cracks, and to show them love and acceptance. You know, love may not exist at all in this world. We see no golden rule or categorical imperative. In fact, we see the opposite. The golden rule is, of course, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. The categorical imperative is, is something that comes much later uh, from Kant, which is do not treat people as a means to an end, but as an end in themselves. These ideas have not come from earth to St. Croix and St. Anne. Everything in this story is an object. All people and all things are a means used as a means to an end. And it is the case then that the churches on St. Croix and St. Anne have allowed themselves to be a means to an end of the government, of the earthly powers that rule, and can only achieve ends that the government then allows. I brought up in VRT that this lack of any intervention on behalf of the church uh, for really people who are struggling, being abused, orphans, slaves, is totally absent. And this is like the collaboration of the Catholic Church uh, in in parts of its uh, organization during World War II with the with the Nazi regime. And that was the church thinking maybe on the surface, we can, if we still exist, we can still do some good. But if we are destroyed, we can do no good as an institution. And so the institution makes compromises. This church, whatever way it exists on these planets, is totally compromised to the point where they have a prison under their crypt and no priests come to visit the prisoners at all. So that's what I think is, is basically happening here is this is a society where everything is used as a means to an end. And this is now a compromised institution that is both a tool being used by the government and is potentially using others in society as tools as well. I'll point out a few places where we do actually encounter priests. One, we should say that there are priests who do appear in VRT. There are Dominican priests in the story about Cinder Walker who uh, who discover that this cattle drover has uh, now has two wives and they're not okay with that. And also, Trenchard tells us that uh, he and his wife, he and VRT's mother, ha- were married by a priest. We never actually encounter priest characters, but they are mentioned at least in VRT. But I think more important than that is that the place where we do actually encounter priests as characters is in a story by John V. Marsh. It's not in the real world. It's in the speculative world, this fantasy world that VRT envisions. There we have two priests. We have the the dead priest in the cave, who Brandon, I think you have done a great job of demonstrating, is a stand-in for Dr. Marsh. And then we have the living priest that we meet in the flesh in that story, who is really, in some ways, you know, is, is, is one of the villains of the story. And that is Last Voice, who ultimately is uh, flagellated to death at the end of the story. What, given, given that there is this absence of priests, 
elsewhere in the book. And given everything now that we know about the authorship and the composition of a story by John V. Marsh, Brandon, do you have any particular reading of what the priests are doing in that story or why VRT is writing about priests in his fantasy novel? Well, I also want to add to this catalog of priests that we see in this story, maybe the presence of an order of nuns as well. It's suggested that VRT went to some sort of Catholic elementary school and was beaten by the teachers there. That, Given that VRT's experience with these nuns, perhaps, with his upbringing, maybe going to a Catholic grade school, is so violent and negative, he only has the living priest, last voice, as an example of what the mediator between himself and God is like. And this living priest, last voice, is brutal. He does experiments on other members of his own species. He says he can communicate with God, but the only way to do it is to murder and to sacrifice and to do harm and perform raids. This is a a violent image uh, of what the mediation between man and God looks like. And we know that the opening of a story by John V. Marsh, the epigram, is about a unity with God that requires no mediator. That's Christian mysticism. So I think that that is maybe what's happening with with Last Voice, uh, is that the, the mediator between man and God is a terrible and violent person, and you need a separate path towards God if God is real. Uh, in VRT's mind. I don't really know about VRT's religious beliefs, um, but it is interesting that maybe he's yearning for an unmediated experience with God. I think the dead priest who is a ghost is John Marsh. This is his mentor. This is Obi-Wan Kenobi at the end of (laughs) Star Wars, who is kind of always with him. He, He haunts him in his dreams and is the one who tells him what he needs to do with his life, but is still just a man, still undeniably the spirit of a man. Another brilliant thing that you pointed out way back when we started working on this novel was that there is strong indications early on that this trilogy of novellas is, in fact, Gene Wolfe's divine comedy. We were never sure how we were going to deal with uh, having the the Paradiso or the, the heaven portion of of Dante's Divine Comedy appear here. We knew we weren't going to directly get a heaven. We also had some anxiety about the fact that it was a binary planet system, not a trinary planet system. Uh, but now that we've gone all the way through this and have been been wrapping up the book for even a few weeks now, Brandon, what is your final assessment of of seeing these novellas or seeing this novel as Gene Wolfe's Divine Comedy? This really hit us, I think, right at the end of our coverage of a story by John V. Marsh. Due to my cruel obsession with this word extension (laughs) and trying to find uh, what was going on there and uncovering in the purgatory, the concept of the shades and the shadow children as 
a type of essence that fills in nothingness, which is exactly the way they talk about extension. I also want to point out here as a note that it's interesting in that conversation when they're describing shaking extension, the shadow children that is, that they tell Sandwalker to put out his hands and imagine that there is nothing there. That is a fantasy of VRTs. To have his hands either be gone or function right. I think that's another indicator that this focus on hands and the hand imagery is that a story by John V. Marsh is written by VRT. So we drew the conclusion then that St. Anne, and especially the presence of the shadow children and this concept of shade and the the spirit which fills the nothingness after the human body leaves and becomes this inhabitant on the mountain of purgatory uh, is then that St. Anne is the purgatory in this divine comedy of Gene Wolfe's. One of the features of the mountain of purgatory is the kind of fallen Eden that exists there and that this is probably the real what's really happening. We also came to the conclusion that the St. Anne of A Story by John V. Marsh existed only in the head of VRT, that it was a reaching, it was a yearning for a better world, a level beyond hell to a closer unity with God, an unmediated unity. But in VRT, we see the return of VRT to San Croix, which is to say to hell, in other words. So the action of the people in these stories really never leaves the inferno. The folks of these stories are, are cut off from unity with God, which is a definition of hell, which is a theme of a story by John V. Marsh. And so I think that we can say that this novel, taken as a whole, is really Wolf's Inferno. And it's not that I believe for a second that you know the Inferno can be used as a schema for unlocking the mysteries of the book the same way that, say, you can use the Inferno and map it as a schema on top of Heart of Darkness by Joseph Conrad. But reading the Inferno won't hurt anyone. It's fantastic, <laughs> and everybody should read it if they get a chance to. But these planets are just rotten. The The next best place outside of these planets that we see in this these stories, the Fallen Eden, is a place that only exists in the mind of an isolated boy who has lost his identity and, and fractured his identity and is trying to imagine a better world. So it could be the case then that that Earth is a place where a better life is possible. But VRT, the only person who could return to Earth, knows he cannot because he is not the person he is pretending to be. And so his identity traps him in hell. All the characters then are only capable of dreaming of better circumstances and a better place. And the best they can reach for is purgatory because God seems to have stopped walking among the men and animals and shadow children of these planets, and they don't know how to bring him back. This separation with God is hell, and this desire for unity is a hope, but they're unable to leave their circumstances. And Glenn, I think you pointed out really excellently in our coverage of VRT that the end of VRT is really only the second act of the hero's journey. So we really, what we're seeing is the first act of the divine comedy. And at the end of it, 
we're left with hope, the final judgment that could free these people from hell. And maybe they are all just shades. Maybe they are all just shadow children in this sense that are in purgatory. The fact that VRT at least can imagine a God that he would want unity with is not something I think that's really possible in hell, but it is possible in purgatory. And so I think that's why the end of VRT leaves us with a lot of hope is that we know there's a third act yet to come. As you say, I I also have an optimistic reading of the end of this story. I I think that the sense in which I have glommed on to this idea that this is Gene Wolfe's Divine Comedy is actually really dependent on the parallels between number five and VRT as characters. So uh, I think that's a good time to transition to our discussion about writing craft, and in particular, the structure of this novel. We want to talk about the structure here in, in two ways. The first, treating it as a novel, and, the other, and, and then on the other side of that, treating it as a collection of novellas. I think a great access point into treating this as a novel is to look at these parallels between number five and VRT. And Brandon, I think you've got a pretty good catalog of what some of these parallels are and what some of the significances of them are as well. And I'm excited to hear this. Right. Well, number five and VRT have a lot in common. I will start just by sort of cataloging some of the things that I think they have in common. And Glenn, if you uh, hear... Well, you wouldn't hear anything I miss, but if you hear anything I miss, <laughs> feel free to jump in. <laughs> it's a miracle of miracles. Yeah. I have uh, I've shaken extension and heard the thoughts unspoken. <laughs> That's right. Um, so number five and VRT both come from abusive households, and they're used by their fathers to achieve ultimately pretty silly ends, I think. Number five repeats exactly the sins of his father. And VRT might as well have when it comes to womanizing or using prostitutes. Um, and he becomes a frequenter of the Maison du Chien, basically turning into his father, a man who sees women as a way to achieve his own ends. They're both boys whose childhoods are marked by unexplainable violence and chaos, at least from the point of view of a child. And the only way that either of them can make sense of how they ended up where they are is to tell themselves a story about it. We see this with number five's whole memoir, which becomes the novella Fifth Head of Cerberus, and VRT's prison journal, where he comes to terms with the fact that he is not John V. Marsh, that his identity has fractured. Both of these boys dream of being other people. Number five has sort of a negative desire to be anything other than himself. He doesn't know what he wants to become. He just doesn't want to be himself. He doesn't want to be his father. VRT, though, has a role model. The role model dies senselessly, and VRT is left alone in the wilderness, and he tries to become, literally inhabit someone else, John Marsh. He inhabits the consciousness of Dr. Marsh and only knows about Dr. Marsh through his limited experience of him and the journal, the St. Anne journal that he gets. VRT is later forced to reckon with this decision when he abuses the identity and persona of John Marsh, when he becomes this light father instead of the dark father. Both of them end up abusing then the people they the identities of the people they become. Uh, VRT is in prison for it. So is number five. And when VRT, though, could have just laid low and taken a job at the university, he 
continues to consort with criminals and ultimately his life, ultimately VRT's location, his presence in prison is really the result of choices he's made. It's the result of the weakness of his own character. But I really want to point out here again, and this is the main thing that connects these two characters, is that both of these people are reliving their past traumas through the act of writing in order to make sense of their lives. And and I think that this is something that Wolf is constantly toying with as a writer. The function of writing for the soul and for the mind seemed to be important to Wolf as a writer. Why write? Why tell stories? And I think Wolf is saying that, that somehow telling ourselves the right stories about our lives can help us get to where we need to be. It can help get us out of our hell, or it can at least explain how we got there if we can be honest enough with ourselves about who we are and the choices we've made. And to me, that is really the the point of having Wolf in these two voices tell the similar story, to re-examine a similar series of events through two different characters who are trapped in hell. He can give us hope at the end that their reckoning with themselves might lead to a better life. This is largely my reading as well, though I, I, I have maybe a more pessimistic view of what's going on with number five than you do. This is, as you say, absolutely a story about two boys who have been abused by their fathers and have developed uh, strategies for dealing with that abuse, both of which involve storytelling to some degree. As you say, number five's strategy is to explain himself to himself, right? But what he's really doing there is, I think, justifying his own future abuse of his son to his son to that son by explaining that there is no escape from this cycle of violence. So I, I have a real pessimistic view of that, uh, but I do have an optimistic view of VRT's strategy, which is not to embrace a world in which there is no agency or no free will, uh, but to develop a strategy to escape. Uh, Physically, he does. He leaves his father as soon as he can. But more importantly, as you point out, uh, he tries to escape the, the, the trauma of his abused childhood through this storytelling. Uh, and you really emphasized there the writing of the, the prison journal, but I, I think I want to emphasize the writing of a story by John V. Marsh, and not even just the writing of it, but the conceiving of it in his imagination, that what he is doing is taking the childhood stories that his mother told him and turning those into a believable world that is as tangible to him as the the real one is. And of course, this is the same move that uh, Tackman makes in The Island of Dr. Death and other stories, this idea that fictional worlds can help us survive a traumatic childhood is this is a theme that we see throughout Wolf. And I think that that is what VRT is doing here as well. And this is actually where I think this lines up uh, with a reading of this novel as Gene Wolfe's Divine Comedy as well. And, and I think my reading deals with this more as three stories or three volumes in a story rather than the, the, sort of the locational reading that you had. The Fifth Head of Cerberus is absolutely hell. It is the inferno of this divine comedy. Uh, and number five embraces that. At the, through, throughout his childhood, he doesn't like it. He does not like the abuse that he is receiving, but we see him throughout through that story come to accept it, then be transformed into a monster himself and ultimately write this story to justify his own monstrosity, to justify the fact that he has embraced 
this hellscape. A story by John V. Marsh is purgatory. As you pointed out, specifically, it's the Garden of Eden or a fallen Eden, but it is you know a fantasy, right? And, and the story even ends on something akin to the moment in which the fall happens or the expulsion from Eden happens. VRT, we return to hell, uh, and and certainly you pointed out, Brandon, that 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 VRT is not uh, being a particularly good person when he shows up on San Qua. Right, he's engaging in awful behavior. He's frequenting a brothel full of sex slaves. Because he's doing that, he is arrested for the same crime that Number Five is arrested for. But you know, as we've said before repeatedly, the book does end with him in the middle of that hero's journey. And but another way of thinking about that is that it ends with him at rock bottom. And for me, the question that we're left with then is whether he's capable of ascending, uh, whether he's capable, whether he's capable of not letting his abuse and his trauma define who he is. And we might even, in the terms of the Divine Comedy, think of this as a choice that he has to make now in his own hero's journey between being a creature of shadow or being a creature of light. Uh, you and I have both, I think, had optimistic readings of the choices that he's going to make based on some of the imagery uh, that Wolf employs there. But of course, we don't know. We've never revisited this story, and it is equally possible and, in fact, more probable, I think, that uh, because it is easier to succumb to to the the darkness, to to go on living as a creature of shadow, even if he is uh, absolved of of all of his crimes and and freed. But I want to take the optimistic reading and see that that Wolf is ending what functions as his paradiso by showing us a character who is going to cast off his sins and be able to be something akin to a, a creature of light that we get in Dante. One thing that just occurred to me is we saw Wolf's use of scripture being used almost as a, as a devil quoting scripture, the reversal of meanings that he's deploying through his allusions to the Beatitudes or Christ's words. Yet at the end, you and I both take this view that the name of the ship's like the even star, which is going to be slower and it's a longer journey, but it's the right ship to put the documents on. And the angel's trumpets at the very end of the story are are somehow not being used as a reversal and and not somehow the reverse imagery of what we would expect as we've seen in the book. And And part of the reason why that is the case is because it is from the third person omniscient narrator who is giving us that imagery, not the subjective experience of one of the characters of the story. So I just wanted to clear that up is, you know, so we didn't sound like we were hypocritical or just picking and choosing (laughs) why the imagery or the illusions look one way to us in a big chunk of the text, but another in the other chunk. It's the frame story is a third person omniscient narrator who we can say is choosing imagery and language very carefully, even if the even stars are real ship, the final image of the angel's trumpets is a choice that the narrator is making, not just a report of language that somebody else used in the story. And that imagery of the trumpets is one of the other ways that we see this working as a novel, as a, a, a structurally as a whole, because 
the book closes on that imagery, but it also opens on that imagery. We have the the silver trumpets that grow up the walls of the Maison du Chêne. It's one of the first details, one of the first images that we get in the book. Then the book ends on that. So it really almost kind of a, a ring composition that Wolf has employed here. And even having the placement of a story by John V. Marsh in the middle, the, separating these two stories of boys who are abused by their fathers and exploring the different choices that they make there. And there's probably more that could be said about treating the novel, about treating this book as a novel. But we also want to spend a little bit of time thinking about it as a collection of three novellas. And and one of the questions that we have here is is how well do the second and third novellas stand up separately? We know Fifth Head of Cerberus was written separately as a standalone, and it functions great that way. But would a story by John V. Marsh be enjoyable without being surrounded by these other two stories? And maybe we ask the same question about VRT. A story by John V. Marsh is so, I think, confounding in general, in its cosmology, in its introduction of these abos and shadow children, in its exploration of religion, that I actually don't know how to encounter it outside of the text that we read it in. There may have been a time where I could have read it before reading these other two stories, but for now, it is cemented as a part of this whole trilogy of novellas, this novel, really. And I think VRT can't be really understood without reading the two novellas that came before. I think Wolf really is driving at this collection being a novel, particularly uh, with the inclusion of the last two novellas. I think Fifth Head is a standalone. It does not need anything else uh, for it to make sense. It can be read wholly on its own. But I think the other two novellas really, really need each other. What are your thoughts on this, Glenn? I actually had a weird personal experience with reading these novellas out of order. I encountered The Fifth Head of Cerberus as a standalone novella in a, a collection of great science fiction stories that was edited by Gardner Dozois. I read that, absolutely loved it. That's really what made me a Gene Wolfe fan rather than just a Book of the New Sun fan. And when I saw the book, The Fifth Head of Cerberus, at my local library when I was in college, uh, I checked that out and it said very clearly on it that it was a collection of novellas. I had read the first one already only you know two months previously or something like that. And I decided to read the longest story in the collection first. So I read VRT. And then I never read a story by John V. Marsh because the book was due back at the library, and uh, so I returned it. It wasn't until three or four years later that I, I, out of college with a job, purchased a copy of the book for myself and read it straight through. So I had read VRT before I had read a story by John V. Marsh. I really loved it. And there were, of course, were many things that I missed by reading it in isolation, but I did feel like it stood up just fine and that there are as a story on its own, that there are are really strong themes and motifs, also interesting puzzles, interesting mysteries, you know, for the, the, the wolf fan who prefers that. But also, I just love the world building. And of course, the prose is magnificent. So I enjoyed the heck out of VRT on its own. What that also did for me, though, is that it meant that when, when I finally got around to reading a story by John V. Marsh, I had already read VRT and incorporated that information. So in some ways, I read the novel in reverse order, uh, that I, in fact, encountered the story in some way in the chronological order of it, that I was already aware of all of the events of VRT by the time I ever read a story by John V. Marsh for the first time. So it was always clear to me that 
the person who had written a story by John V. Marsh was someone who had had those experiences that I had already read about in VRT. Uh, this is something that I've actually been thinking about this week as we've been prepping for this episode is what would actually happen if you gave someone this book and told them to read it backwards. I mean, not page for page, but read the third novella first, the second novella second, and the first novella last to actually read the story in the chronological order of its events rather than in the way that Wolf has it organized here. And was thinking about what that would do for a reader. What puzzles and mysteries would that reader find? What themes and motifs would that reader find? And something that definitely jumped out to me is that there would be no mystery about a story by John V. Marsh, as there really wasn't for me, but there also wouldn't be any aliens. You you wouldn't go you would not leave this story thinking that there were aliens because by the time you get to the assertion that there definitely are and these are their tools, you would already know that 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 those are forgeries and that that uh, that the information upon which this assumption is based is itself totally faulty. And so that is only even a puzzle or a mystery in the text because of the way that Wolf has played with his structuring of it. I will say also that I think that this would be a fun experiment to do on somebody. So, uh, Brandon, we can't do it on ourselves uh, at this point, but I don't know if a listener out there has a, a friend or a, a partner that they want to want to force into this experiment. Uh, I'd love to hear how that how that turns out. Yeah, but just keep it to the book reading. No genetic experiments on children or about their dreams. That's not what we're recommending. Well, I think one of the questions we love to ask after we finish a big wolf project is what we've learned about writing from reading wolf. What lessons have we learned? So, Glenn, I just would love to ask you what you learned about writing, how, how about your own craft from reading this book? Way back in our very first episode, our introduction to what this podcast is all about, I talked about Wolf's world building as my primary value, as the thing that I go to Wolf for above all else. He is a master of it, and something that was so majestic that he does in The Fifth Head of Cerberus is to incorporate his thematic elements of the story into the setting itself, into the world that he is building. It almost builds the world around those themes. It doesn't just limit the themes to characters and to plots, but that the world itself is built on top of that foundation. This is not something that I myself have incorporated into my own craft, and this is the challenge that I'm going to take with me, uh, you know, the next story that I get to write, uh, to, to try to emulate how Wolf does that here in this story, because it makes the story work on a, on really on a foundational, on a profound level. Uh, so it's a mastery of craft that I just don't know that I've seen paralleled anywhere else. It also saves an enormous amount of word count, um, which is <laughs> which is always nice. I know you know the kind of current trend of epic fantasy is massive amounts of ink spilled about world building, but when you can really incorporate what the world is with what your characters are dealing with, when you're looking at the world through the experience of your characters, you don't have to spend as much time on the smells of chicken and stew and spilled beer and all the other and the outfits everybody wears because you, you need to say it once or twice. But if it's not relevant to the theme, it might not be important to the story you're telling. And so with world building being such a trend, um, I think Wolf is a great lesson in brevity here. 
what lesson in craft are you going to take away from this book? Well, I'm also going to talk about the themes here. And, and this is, I think you're right to point out that the incorporation of the themes into the world building is is brilliant and masterful. But based on the criticism that I've read about these books, not I'm talking literary criticism here, not people attacking Wolf. Right. <laughs> um, I've come to the c- conclusion that Wolf may have been too clever by half in the way he told these stories. Uh, you and I could have entirely misread these stories with our reading about there being no aliens and not really engaging deeply with the puzzles and mysteries that have surrounded this story and the community of wolf readers for so long. And perhaps in other future readings of this story, as we return to it, we'll discover new things that will reinforce or totally change our opinions. Or the reading community has picked up on things from this story that bury in my mind what I see is the real tragedy and themes that Wolf is trying to lay out. And I think one thing that I've learned as I'm kind of developing as a writer is the need for clarity around the themes. If you don't want ambiguous readings of your work, ambiguity absolutely has its place in literature and readings, but I wonder if it's possible to be too ambiguous so I guess at the end of the day, like what this taught me is that it's really important to have your goals set up before you on, especially related to the types of readings you're willing to accept about your work. And all this should be done maybe by the time you get to the fifth revision or so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a great lesson as well. Uh, and of course, now we get to hold each other to these new commitments when we are when we are proofing and editing and critiquing each other's work. Uh, and of course, you know, one of the explicit purposes of this podcast to begin with was for us to get better at our own writing by learning from this master. And this is one of the, the masterpieces of someone who writes a lot of masterpieces. And so there is much to be learned by any aspiring or even veteran writer from this book. We've got just a few more things that we want to say about this book before we close out this final part of our wrap-up episode. And before we get to talk to Wolf Scholar Mark Aramini about the book, a couple quick questions we just want to go through. So Brandon, I'm going to ask you this question first. Of the three novellas in The Fifth Head of Cerberus, which of them was your favorite? I think at the end of the day, the one I'm going to return to the most is going to be The Fifth Head of Cerberus, the opening novel. I could probably pick up and reread Fifth Head at any time. I just think it's a it's a beautiful work as a standalone, and it just is well-suited to just uh, an hour of pleasurable reading. What about you, Glenn? What was your favorite? Uh, my answer is exactly the same, that it, it is really the prose of The Fifth Head of Cerberus that just draws me in. And even though it is an ugly story about child abuse in a on a hell planet the prose is so delightful is so beautiful uh, and so transportive right that it, it it is the sort of thing that i will always gravitate to when i've come home from a, a stressful day of work and need like vrt or tackman babcock to escape to another world it will always be one of my go-tos for that reason in addition to deciding which of these novellas was our favorite, we are now at the conclusion of this book going to institute uh, a new part of the show, a segment that we will do at the completion of every novel or every series as we encounter them, which is to rank the novels as we have read them. Now, right now, of course, we only have two. Uh, and Brandon, I'm going to let you have the first crack at this, just in case you're going to shock me by saying that you've thought about it and you think that 
you prefer Operation Ares to the fifth head of Cerberus. There's not a chance of that happening, I think. <laughs> um, I think as we have two novels under our belt here, it's obvious that uh, fifth head of Cerberus is better objectively and subjectively than operationaries. Right. I'm not going to try to get a spit take out of you either here, but I will say that looking ahead, we have Peace coming up, which to me is another of Wolf's real masterpieces. So this will be a much more difficult and perhaps more interesting conversation to have once we've gotten Peace under our belts as well. Well, we've come now to the end of the things that we really have to say about this book. We want to, we want, now that we are closing it out, we actually want to look ahead, look to the future. And so we have each picked uh, a, one of Wolf's allusions, one of Wolf's literary references in this book that we want to encourage people to read. So, Brandon, uh, now that people are done reading The Fifth Head of Cerberus with us, what do you think they should go read next? How can I not go with Proust here? It's got to be In Search of Lost Time, or at least Swan's Way, if you don't want to read all seven of them. But I recommend reading at least two or three of them because of the way Proust is able to revise your past understanding of characters and their motivations and what's going on in the story itself with a further exploration of past memories. And that's exactly what Wolf is doing in this trilogy of novellas, this novel. I remember reading, though, uh, Dan Simmons' blog when he, he was a little bit more active on his site. It might have been an interview or something. And I also stopped reading Dan Simmons' personal musings after this. But he said something to the effect of if aspiring writers come up to him with their epic fantasy manuscripts or something like that, and he finds out that they haven't read Proust, he basically tells them to read that first and then start writing again. <laughs> and it's, I think it's a harsh lesson for a fan who has approached their favorite writer at a con or something like that. But there really are certain literary artifacts that open up new possibilities for expanding your own craft and understanding the world in some cases. And I think that trying to wrap your head around what Proust does on the narrative sentence, syntactical and grammatical level will only help to improve and understand your own writing craft better and a lot of tools of the trade. Um, plus the stories that are told in there, the anecdotes, the insights to human motivations, all of it works together beautifully and it's incredible. So I would say if you have the time, start with Swan's Way, take a decade to read them. There's, there's no rush. The books are always going to be there. I've taken a very similar approach. I'm going to double up here though and I'm, I'm going to recommend both The Odyssey and The Aeneid. And for a lot of the same reasons, in terms of craft, or even just in terms of being a good reader, you really should have this concept of the hero's journey down. The Odyssey and the Aeneid are the archetypal stories, the, the sort of foundational stories of Western literature that do this. And because they're so foundational, besides just being important in the way that people writing in English tell stories, uh, allusions to these works are used uh, shorthand for thematic content, not just here in the fifth head of Cerberus, but uh, in thousands upon thousands of other works of literature. And so your ability to understand what is going on thematically, uh, or even about characters, even about plot in so much of the canon, or even not the canon of literature, uh, is going to be aided by knowing these works. Also, they're just really awesome. They're foundational and significant and influential for a reason. They're immensely enjoyable. They're incredibly fun. 
So I want to recommend translations of both of these texts, the Odyssey and the Aeneid, by a really great translator named uh, Stanley Lombardo. And these are both available in, in, in cheap paperbacks. So, and, and these are what I use in class, and I think that they're, they're highly accessible. Uh, I'm, I just like to take them off the shelf and read them, just random passages for 20 minutes, 30 minutes at a time. Uh, you can't go wrong with doing that. Plus, the Lombardo translations have really great covers, <laughs> not to be ignored. Yeah, in fact, specifically, the Odyssey cover ha- has a beautiful blue planet uh, com- coming up over uh, another celestial body. It's the Earth coming up over the moon, but you could definitely imagine that you're standing on St. Anne watching St. Croix come up. I think if you look closely enough, you can see the peninsula of the hand and the lights of Port Mimizan. <laughs> you have to look real close. You'll have to get out your magnifying glass, but it's there. And if going backwards and and reading the great pieces of the canon of Western literature is not really your thing, if what you really want to do is go and read more speculative fiction, uh, we've actually got a couple of science fiction recommendations as well. These are are works that uh, directly respond to the fifth head of Cerberus. Uh, We're not going to give you any spoilers about these because, of course, one of the things that these works do is riff on Wolf's use of puzzles and mysteries. We certainly don't want to ruin that element of these books. Uh, but Brandon, you've got a, a gr- really great recommendation. So let's let's hear yours first. I can't recommend enough Michael Swanwick's novel, Stations of the Tide. Swanwick has created a brilliant technological world uh, and celestial government that is trying to gain a handle on really what is a, a, a pagan hellscape planet. And uh, it's full of technological wizardry, witchcraft, weird fiction tropes. Um, but it really is a, about a character's journey through hell and becoming in some sense. It's a fantastic novel. It's a quick read. It's a lot of fun. And Swanwick has also written an homage to this story as a direct response uh, to Fifth Head of Cerberus in his collection, Not So Much Said the Cat where he takes the opening paragraph of Fifth Head, changes a few of the facts around, and follows that story where it will lead him. It's highly recommended as an homage to Wolf's great novel here. And Stations of the Tide uh, explicitly picks up some of the the setting elements of the Fifth Head of Cerberus as well. There are long-lost shape-shifting aliens who may never have existed, maybe they still do, uh, and also robots with TV screens for their heads, just like Mr. Million. Uh, It is uh, absolutely uh, a riff on the Fifth Head of Cerberus, and it is awesome, I will say. It is a book that I've uh, read again very recently, in fact. Glenn, what do you recommend as continued reading in the science fiction vein. I I know you have some thoughts on this. Yeah, I want to recommend the book Speaker for the Dead by Orson Scott Card. I think everyone is familiar with Ender's Game on some level. This is the the sequel to Ender's Game. Card takes his cue for the setting from St. Croix and St. Anne. It's a, a colony planet settled by romance language speaking christians uh, and there's a heavy presence of christian institutions on this planet and some of the the religious themes and especially themes about uh, about moral behavior how we treat other people the way that how we treat other people is a significant factor in the development of children and becoming people themselves uh, are hugely important themes in this work uh, there are also aliens here and uh, so the colony is a is small and it's 
basically an outpost for some anthropologists. Uh, and these aliens are in no small way a response to a story by John V. Marsh. And I will simply leave it at that because the puzzles and mysteries are part of the real pleasure of reading Speaker for the Dead. Uh, we would love for listeners to pick up any of these books. Michael Swanwick, Orson Scott Cart, Proust, The Odyssey, The Aeneid, uh, and Come to the forum and let us know what you think about these books, uh, just on their own, but also let us know if these are new for you, how reading them has maybe changed or influenced your your understanding or your enjoyment of The Fifth Head of Cerberus as well. well with that said, uh, that is going to do it for this episode. I'm Glenn McDorman. And I'm Brandon Buddha. You can find us, as always on claytemplemedia.com. Please do come over to the forum. Let us know about any of these other books that you are reading, decide to read, have read, but of course, come to the forum and uh, take us to task for things that you we've said that you disagree with. Let us know what you thought were the most important themes and motifs of this book. This is a conversation that we would be delighted to have with you. Also, just want to remind you that uh, you can become a patron on Patreon to get access to all of our bonus episodes, including Jane Wolfe's Mountains Like Mice and the Star Trek TNG episode Q-Who. Next time, we'll be back to talk about this book in its entirety with Wolf scholar Mark Aramini. Until then, we greet you and say farewell. <laughs>